Section 20 of the Roman Empire of the Second Century by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 The Literary Currents of the Age. Part 2. The life of Dion Chrysostom may serve to illustrate still further the ideal of the philosophic propaganda of these times. He was indeed no Stoic by profession and did not use heroic tones, yet like the sage pictured to our fancy in the strong words of Epictetus, he felt that he was called to spend his life unselfishly for others and to preach and plead to every class in the enthusiasm of a religious duty. He only gradually awoke indeed to the sense of his vocation, and it is curious to read his own account of his conversion to philosophy and note his confessions of unworthiness. Driven by a popular riot from his home at Prusa, in which town he had already filled the highest offices, he betook himself to Rome where he gained a name for eloquence and the hatred of Domitian by outspoken satire. He fled away and lived a wandering life, in the course of which, as we have seen already, he appeased a mutiny among the legions when the news of the tyrant's murder reached their camp upon the northern frontier. During those years of banishment, he hid his name, but could not hide his talents. His threadbare cloak was taken for a cynic's mantle, and men often came to him to ask for counsel. His quibbles of rhetoric availed him little for cases of conscience such as these, and he was driven to meditate in earnest on great themes of duty and seek for truth at the sources of a higher wisdom. With light so gained he saw the vanity of human wishes, he felt the littleness of his earlier aims, and resolved to devote his eloquence to a higher cause than that of personal ambition. He would spend himself for the needs of every class without distinction, and tend the anxious or despairing as the physician of their souls, regretting only that so few care for serious thought in the season of prosperity, and fly to the sage for ghostly counsel only when loss of friends or dear ones makes them feel the need of consolation. The details of his life and character are known to us chiefly by his works, some of which are moral essays, sermons, as it were, on special texts which might be preached to any audience alike, while others are set speeches made in public, as occasion called him forth in many a far-off city as he sojourned in his wandering career. In the former class we note that among all the commonplaces of the schools, High thoughts may be met with here and there, full of a large humanity, and with an entirely modern sound. In a world whose social system rested on a basis of slave labor, he raised his voice not merely to plead for kindliness and mercy, but to dispute the moral right of slavery itself. Feeling deeply for the artisan and peasant whose happiness was sacrificed, and whose social status was degraded by the haughty sentiment of Greece and Rome, he spoke in accents seldom heard before of the dignity and prospects of industrial labor. His account of the shipwrecked traveler in Euboa gives us a picture, else unequaled in its vividness, of the breach between the city and the country life, and of the uncared-for loneliness of much of the rural population. But the second class of writings best reflects the temper and activity of Dion's efforts to bring philosophy to bear upon the world. They show him as the advocate of peace, 
stepping in with words of timely wisdom to allay the bitterness of long-standing feuds or the outbreak of fresh jealousies such as had lingered for centuries among the little states of the aegean and survived even the tutelage of roman power at one time the subject of dispute is the scene of the provincial courts at another the proud title of metropolis of asia at another some infinitely petty right of fisheries or of pasture quarrels such as these brought citizens of rival towns into collision in the streets and led to the interchange of passionate complaints wearying out the patience of their roman masters by the vanity and turbulence of these greek republics all dion's tact and all his eloquence were needed in such cases to enforce the eternal principle of concord and forbearance by the dexterous use of personal appeals he shows his sense of the importance of this work by speaking with a sort of fervour of the holy functions of this ministry of reconciliation he was jealous of his dignity and independence stooping to truckle neither to the violence of mob license nor to the caprices of a monarch he startled the dissolute population of alexandria by his bold defiance of their wanton humour and by his skilful pleading to have the claims of philosophy respected he bore himself with courteous firmness in the presence of the court and lectured trajan on the duties of a royal station without any loss of honest frankness or imperial favour he preached on the vanity of human glory and was one day to prove in his own person how treacherous and unsubstantial a thing it is the cities which had honoured him as their teacher and their friend were presently to grow weary of his counsels and to show him the indignity of setting another head upon his statues prusa his birthplace and the object of his special tenderness was to turn against him in blind fury and to denounce him to the roman governor as a traitor and a thief to the vicissitudes of the career of dion we may find a striking contrast in the unbroken calm of plutarch's life descended from an ancient family of boeotian chironia after drawing from the sources of ancient art and learning at their fountain-head at athens he betook himself in riper years to rome where besides attending to the duties with which he seems to have been charged in the service of his fellow townsmen he lectured publicly from time to time and made good use of the literary stores amassed in the great libraries and of the interchange of thought in the cultivated circles of the capital in the vigour of his intellectual manhood he went back to chironia where he lived henceforth for fear he says that the little town should lose in him a single citizen serving with honourable zeal in the whole round of civil and religious offices and winning the respect of all his neighbours as well as of many correspondents from abroad full of the generous patriotism of the best days of greece he gave his time and thought without reserve to the service of his countrymen though he allowed no glamour of ancient sentiment to cloud his judgment he told the young aspirants around him that when they read the harangues of pericles and the story of their old republics they must be careful to remember that those times were gone for ever and that they must speak with bated breath in their assemblies since the power had passed into the hands of an imperial governor it was idle to be like children at their play who dressed themselves as grown-up folks 
and put on their father's robes of state and yet the worthy citizen he says has no lack of opportunities for action to keep open house and so to be a harbour of refuge for the wanderers to sympathise with joy and grief to be careful not to wound men's feelings by the wantonness of personal display to give counsel freely to the unwary to bring parted friends once more together to encourage the efforts of the good and frustrate the villainy of designing knaves to study in a word the common weal these are the duties which a citizen can discharge until his dying day whether clothed or not with offices of state for plutarch did not write merely as a literary artist to amuse a studious leisure or revive the memory of heroic days but as a moralist invested by public confidence with a sort of priesthood to direct the consciences of men he had indeed no new theory of morals to maintain and made no pretension to original research he wished not to dazzle but to edify to touch the heart and guide the conduct rather than instruct the reason his friends or neighbours came to him for counsel on one or other of life's trials and he sends them willingly the fruit of his study or reflection he holds his conferences like a master of the schools and the privileged guests flock willingly to hear the sermons of which the subject has already been announced and listen with becoming gravity to the exhortations of the sage sometimes they are invited to propose a question for debate but nothing frivolous can be allowed nor may any of the audience betray an unseemly lack of interest like the bidden guest who scarcely touches with his lips the viands which his host has spread before him the listener's mind must be ever on the alert as the tennis player watches for the ball and he never should forget that he is sitting not like a lounger at the theatre but in a school of morals where he may learn to regulate his life the lecture ended or the public conference closed the privileged few remained to discuss the subject further with their master while here or there a stricken conscience stays behind to confess its secret grief and ask for ghostly admonition but the teacher's doors are ever open all may freely come and go who need encouragement or advice on any point of social duty out of such familiar intercourse and the cases of conscience thus debated grew the treatises of ethics which read at rome and athens as well as in the little town of chironia extended to the world of letters the fruits of his ministry of morals he did not always wait to be applied to but sought out at times the intimates who seemed to need his counsels watched their conduct with affectionate concern and pressed in with warning words amid the business of common life he tried to recommend philosophy not by precept only but by practice first testing on himself the value of his spiritual drugs and working with humility for the salvation of his soul it was for the good of others he tells us that i first began to write the biographies of famous men but i have since taken to them for my own sake their story is to me a mirror by the help of which i do my best to rule my life after the likeness of their virtues i seem to enter into living communion with them while bidding them welcome one by one under the shelter of my roof i contemplate the beauty and the grandeur of the souls unbarred before me in their actions 
yet it was not without other reasons that he lingered over these old passages of history and romance for indeed with all his width of sympathy and his broad humanity the mind of plutarch was cast in an antique mould at home mainly in the world of books or in the social moods of a petty town of greece he knew little of the new ideas which were then leavening the masses the christian church meantime was setting the hearts of men aglow with the story of a noble life which could find no sort of parallel in his long list of ancient worthies dion chrysostom had dared to call the right of slavery in question and spoke as feelingly as any modern writer of the sorrows of the proletariat and the dignity of labour marcus aurelius was soon to show what delicate humility and unselfish grace could blossom in the midst of heathendom while straining after visions of perfection not to be realized in scenes of earth but plutarch's thought in religion and in morals seems scarcely to have passed beyond the stage of human progress reached long ago in plato's days and five centuries had passed away and taught him no new principles of duty he believed in the unity of god and saw the vanity of idol worship but to him the essence of religion lay not in dogmas or rules of life but in solemn ritual he clung to the edifying round of holy forms though the faith to which they ministered of old was swept away and though he had to people the unseen world with intermediate spirits and freely resort to allegoric fancy to justify the whole mythology of greek religion in morals his ideal is confined to the culture and perfection of the personal aspirant and amiable and chastened as are his tones of courtesy his talk is still of happiness rather than of duty and his spiritual horizon is too narrow to take in the thought of the loathsomeness of evil and the enthusiasm of charity his calm serenity reminds us of the temples of old greece which attain in all that is attempted to a simple grace and a consummate art with none of the gloom and mystery of a christian cathedral and with little of its witness to a higher world and its vision of unfulfilled ideals but most of the scholars of the day make no pretensions to such earnest thought and shrunk from philosophy as from a churlish mentor who spoke a language harsh and discordant to their ears these were literary artists word fanciers and rhetoricians whose fluent speech and studied graces won for them oftentimes a world-wide fame and raised them to wealth or dignity but did not add a single thought to the intellectual capital of their age and left behind no monument of lasting value they studied the orators of earlier days to learn the secrets of their power but the times were changed since the party strife of the republican assemblies had stirred into intensity the statesman's genius and passion the pleadings even of the law courts were somewhat cold and lifeless when all of the graver cases were sent up by appeal before the emperor or his servants they tried indeed to throw themselves back into the past to reopen the debates of history and galvanize into spasmodic life the rigid skeletons of ancient quarrels when men grew weary of these worn-out topics the lecturers had recourse to paradox to quicken afresh the jaded fancy startling the curiosity by some unlooked-for theme writing panegyrics on fever and baldness dust and smoke the fly even and the gnat 
or imagining almost impossible conjectures to test their skill in casuistry or their fence of subtle dialectic to others the subject mattered little like the isaias of whom pliny writes admiringly or the improvisatori of a later age they left the choice to the audience who came to hear them and cared only to display the stock of images with which their memory was furnished their power of graceful elocution in which every tone or gesture had artistic value or their unfailing skill in handling all the arms of logical debate sometimes it was a question merely of the choice of words the greeks commonly were faithful to the purer models of good style but the roman taste not content with the excellence of cicero as approved by quintilian's practical judgment mounted higher for its standards of latinity and prided itself on its familiar use of archaic words or phrases gleaned from cato or aeneas the harmonious arrangement of these borrowed graces was in itself a proof of eloquence and poverty of thought and rigid feeling mattered little if the stock of such literary conceits was large enough fronto of Sirta passed for the first orator of his day at rome and was honoured with the friendship of three emperors of whom the latest marcus aurelius had been his pupil and was to the last a loving friend when scholars heard early in this century that the letters which passed between the sovereign and the professor had been found in a palimpsest under the acts of the council of chalcedon they were full of eager interest to read them but they turned with contempt from the tasteless pedantry and tawdry affectation of the style which was then so much in vogue at rome it is curious to find the rhetorician speaking of his favourite art as the only serious study of the age for philosophy he said no style was needed no laboured periods nor touching peroration the student's intellect was scarcely ruffled while the lecturer went droning on in the dull level of his tedious disquisitions lazy assent or a few lifeless words alone were needed and the audience might be even half asleep while the firstly and secondly were leisurely set forth and truisms disguised in learned phrases that done the learner's work was over no conning over tasks by night no reciting or declaiming no careful study of the power of synonyms or the methods of translation he thought it mere presumption of philosophy to claim the sphere of morals for its special care the domain of rhetoric was wide enough to cover that as well as many another field of thought her mission was to touch the feelings and to guide men by persuasive speech for words were something infinitely sacred too precious to be trifled with by any bungler in the art of speaking as for the thoughts they were not likely to be wanting if only the terms of oratory were fitly chosen yet with all the pedant's vanity we see disclosed to us in his familiar letters an honest true and simple-minded man who was jealous for the honour of his literary craft who lived contentedly on scanty means and never abused his influence at court to advance himself to wealth or honour. End of section 20